it. <laughs> Hard to believe that three months have come and gone. <clears throat> Feels like it was just a few breaths, you know, and you were all arriving in September. <clears throat> So tonight I'd like to talk about the beginning of the next retreat, (laughs) which is actually a much harder one. This was the preparation for the retreat which happens when you leave here. This time now, you know, beginning tomorrow morning, is really extremely delicate you're much more open and sensitive than you realize. Just from being in silence for three months and moving so slowly and being so focused in each moment, or almost each moment, There's an incredible sensitivity that happens when you're in the middle of the process you're really not aware of. You will become excruciatingly aware of it tomorrow morning. And so a great care is needed, really a lot of gentleness in making the transition. It's understanding that the transition itself is a practice. Know how to relate to beginning to talk, beginning to speed up, beginning to relate in a more ordinary way. That itself is a practice in awareness, in mindfulness. One of the very common things that happens to people as they leave retreat, and particularly a three-month retreat, a long one like this, is quite a large and frequent swing of moods. There'll be exhilaration and enthusiasm and all this energy bursting forth, and then most likely there'll be a crash, you know, and you'll feel depressed and sad and unhappy. And again, the mind's going to go up and down and up and down. Know that this is really quite normal. This is characteristic of these next few days, and weeks, and months. (laughs) And so it's, it's quite important and quite valuable just to make the space for that to happen. You know, not to struggle with it, but to realize that this is part of this transition time, of coming out of such an intense period of practice. The question I would like to talk about tonight is how we can bring the practice of these last three months into our daily lives. How do we actually integrate this work into a practice of living the Dhamma, living the truth? The underlying principle of understanding and one that is essential to work with and to cultivate and to keep in mind is that there is nothing which is outside of the Dhamma. 
There's nothing which is outside the field of awareness. In our lives, we go through many different forms. There's the form of being on silent retreat. There's the form of work. There's the form of relationship. There's the form of all the many things we do. And it's all part of our practice. It's all part of this mind-body process unfolding. And so it's essential is to hold it in our understanding that all of it is our practice so that we don't fragment. We don't think the meditation means sitting and walking in a particular place in a particular way, but that it's really our whole life. I think you'll find, and those of you who have left these long retreats before know very well, that in the fullness of our lives outside, there are endless opportunities for practice, for opening, for growth. And that's what makes the way of mindfulness, the way of awareness so rich. It's not limited to being in a particular place, being in a particular form. There are two great principles to grok, to get, which will make the integration of this work here, which will make it alive as you leave really the sanctuary you know, of a silent retreat place. One is going to come as a bit of a disappointment. And that is that the same effort which was needed on retreat is needed off of retreat. (laughs) I think so often we get the idea, we gear ourselves up to make this really heroic effort, which, which everyone has made here. It's quite extraordinary. We gear up to make this effort when we come on retreat and somehow have the hope that when we finish, we can kind of relax the effort and just coast on the fruits of our practice. (laughs) It doesn't work like that. (laughs) If we really understand this and see that in some way, what you have been practicing on retreat is practicing how to make right effort. Practicing how to do it, how to arouse those qualities in the mind of attention so that when we leave and we're in the busyness of our lives, we have that facility. So that's the first great principle. But the same effort that's needed on retreat is needed off of the retreat. There's a second great principle which comes directly from the Buddhist teachings and is very obvious to anybody who has spent time in practice, and that is that wisdom grows 
when we actually practice awareness and it wanes when we don't. That wisdom is not some static thing which we get and then we can hold and have. Actually living the wisdom of the Dhamma comes as we practice it and wanes when we don't practice it. And so it's to see it as something that needs to be cherished, it needs to be nurtured, it's an alive thing. It's not some dead possession. This is extremely helpful to, to understand as we leave the sanctuary of a retreat and are actually living our lives in the world. The Buddha spoke of three trainings. And it's with his usual clarity you know, and, and real profundity of understanding, he outlined the course of the path or the domain of the path in three different fields of training. And this is our work. This is what we need to cultivate. The first of them, the first field of training, is sila, is morality. Paying attention to our actions, paying attention to the results of our actions. And it's not to take this for granted. Now, often I think we feel we're basically moral people, we're basically non-harming. But sila is an arena that can be beautifully refined. So it's not to take for granted you know, the particular level that we may be at, but to see it as something that can be worked and practiced and developed. How can we do this? How do we actually refine the level of morality of sila? It's paying attention to our actions. One way we pay attention is to our actions as they affect our own minds. We really watch what's the qualities that are being developed in our minds as we do different things. Is there more greed? Is there more love? Is there more anger? Is there more compassion? So as we're acting in the world, as we're relating in the world, we're, we're watching, we're seeing what's the effect of this on our minds. We can look at how our actions affect other people. It's another way of refining sila. Not only as they're affecting our own minds, but what is the effect? Does it create, do our actions create more harmony? Do they create more peace? Do they create discord? Do they create disunity? And what I feel is so important is that we actually keep this very present, that it's not, it's not something that should be wrote in our lives or assumed in our lives, but that we are actually paying attention. What is the effect of our actions? What's the effect on our own minds? What's the effect on other people? 
and really taking care with non-harming to make that the ground of our understanding. But this is the foundation, this is the meaning of sila, of morality. Acting without harming. When we're committed to this level of morality, we are giving a wonderful gift to every being we come in contact with. We're giving the gift of fearlessness. We're giving the gift of trust. Because we're saying with our actions, we're saying with how we're living our lives, you don't need to fear me. And in this world of ours, this is a priceless gift. This gift of trust, this gift of fearlessness. Over the years of practice, both in retreat and out of retreat, I've come to appreciate tremendously the power of the precepts, of just what it means to to take the precepts of not killing and not stealing and not committing sexual misconduct and not lying and not taking intoxicants which confuse the mind. What is the power inherent in these precepts? It's partly the power of guidelines for us when we're uncertain. Now, as we get involved in the complexity of our lives and we're busy and we're doing things, and we don't know, we don't know if something is really harmful or not. Or we begin to see a kind of rationalization in the mind. to justify an action that may actually be harmful. The power of the precepts is there not as a commandment. It's not the flavor of it at all, but it's a reminder. If we've taken the precept not to kill, or not to take that which isn't given, as we're about to do something in which there might be confusion, it rings a bell, it wakes us up. It's like a moment of awakening from the power of having taken that precept. So it's tremendously, tremendously supportive in our lives. It's a protection for us from the influence of unwholesome, unskillful mind states. And you know how they creep up on us. You know, the the mind is so slippery. And and moments of greed or moments of anger or resentment or envy or fear or jealousy or all all those emotions or states that can arise which we can so easily act on, the precepts act as a protection against the acting out of these states. Not only as a protection, but also as a support for the beautiful states of mind. They support the arising of wholesome states. Because sila is the root condition for the arising of non-remorse. 
Now, why do we feel remorse in the mind? We feel remorse over unskillful things that we've done. As we're committed to basic morality, basic non-harming, non-remorse arises. Out of non-remorse comes happiness. Out of happiness comes concentration. Out of concentration comes wisdom. Out of wisdom comes enlightenment. It's simple. (laughs) (laughs) And so it's just not to underestimate and not to undervalue this essential role that sila plays, the morality plays. A key piece in this is realizing that it can begin to work from the moment that we actually commit ourselves to following these precepts. We don't need to worry about all those past unskillful actions that we've done. We have all done a lot. And most of them probably have arisen in your mind you know, over these last three months. And it's easy for the mind to just dwell on these unwholesome acts, you know, where we were greedy or angry or whatever. It's not valuable and it's not in accord with the Dhamma. It's to see them, it's to understand, it's to develop some wisdom, the wisdom of future restraint, and to actually take a delight or a a sense of joy in knowing that we are actually now committed to a life of non-harming. And so from the time that we start that, it gives a tremendous strength in our lives. It's the force of sila, it's the force of morality, which gives power to our aspirations. And this is an interesting understanding of how the world works. You know, we, we have all different aspirations in our lives, to do this or accomplish that. And yet we see sometimes they happen easily and sometimes with tremendous difficulty, sometimes not at all. The underlying principle is that the stronger the force of our sila, the more established is our sila, that is what gives power to the fulfillment of aspiration. And so it becomes this tremendous positive energy for us. As we've mentioned throughout the retreat, it is the force of sila that, that really beautifies the heart. This is the true beauty of a person. I'd like to reread a poem that I read earlier in the retreat at the very beginning. It's just, just actually the first half of it because I like it so much. There's that poem by Galway Cannell, St. Francis in the Sow. The bud stands for all things, even for those things that don't flower. For everything flowers from within of self-blessing. Though sometimes it is necessary to reteach a thing its loveliness, 
to put a hand on the brow of the flower and retell it in words and in touch, it is lovely until it flowers again from within of self-blessing. Sometimes it is necessary to reteach a thing its loveliness. That's what we're doing. You know, we're reteaching ourselves so that we can see the loveliness in ourselves and so that we can see it in others. This is the great beauty of sila. From this loveliness of the heart, it really nurtures the qualities of metta, of loving-kindness and compassion. Sila is the source of metta, it's the source of compassion. It's this care and concern and kindness for oneself and for all beings. We can live in that space, we can cultivate that space, and the world so sorely needs it, as you will find out tomorrow. These feelings of metta and compassion, when they're grounded in the actuality of non-harming, when they're really grounded in sila, they make possible, they make possible forgiveness. Forgiveness of ourselves for the unwholesome things we've done in the past, forgiveness of others. We don't stay so solidified. And out of this quality of metta, of compassion, of forgiveness, comes the possibility of real service. We can be of service to one another. We can really be of help. Manifest these qualities of love and compassion. That's the first great field of training that has been cultivated here and can be cultivated in an even more complex and richer way in the complexity of our lives. The training in sila, the training in morality, the refinement of it. Reteaching a thing its loveliness. The second field of training is what the Buddha called the field of samadhi. And in this case, he's talking about the cultivation of three particular mental factors, three particular qualities which we've been working on intensively during these months. They're the qualities of effort, of mindfulness, and of concentration. When these three threads are woven together, they become very strong, becomes very hard to break them. Any one of them alone can easily be snapped. But when we intertwine right effort and mindfulness and concentration, the three braided together are this very powerful, 
unbreakable force in our lives. The kalesas, or the unskillful states of mind, don't have the power then to overwhelm us. We no longer are drowning in greed, or drowning in anger, or fear, or all those torments of the mind. They may still arise, as we well know, but there's a greater ease, there's a greater spaciousness about them. We see more clearly their true nature. We see them as visitors to the mind rather than as residents in the mind. They arise and we don't invite them in. This friend, Surya Das, who's visiting us and who has spent much time in a few three-year retreats in the Tibetan tradition, and he's going to be talking with you in a couple of nights. He told me a very nice story last night. which We were talking about Marpa, who was the teacher of Milarepa, the great Tibetan yogi. And Marpa had traveled uh, from Tibet into India in a lot of hardship to get the teachings. And he said that in this Tibetan tradition, the defilements are considered to be like lines drawn in water. But in his case, in Marpa's case, actually the defilements, the kalesas, were like lines carved in rock. But fortunately, even the rocks were of luminous nature. So I thought that was encouraging. Translated into our language, When we understand the essential emptiness, selflessness of the kalesas, when this samadhi group is strong, when effort, mindfulness, and concentration is strong, and we see these unskillful forces arise in the mind, we're not fooled by them. We're not taken in by them. We're not taken over by them. We see their essentially empty nature as arising and passing away. And so they don't have the opportunity then to overwhelm the mind. This is the power of samadhi. As we see things more clearly in this way, the mind rests in a kind of tranquility, a kind of peace. It's not so disturbed. So the question for us, the big question, this point, is how can we strengthen right effort, mindfulness, and concentration outside of the context of an intensive retreat? When we leave here, how to actually keep this development going? There are a few very simple suggestions which are tremendously effective if we're able to actually do it. The first of them is 
the last Vipassana mantra. You know, the first one was, it's okay, it's okay, and then the various ones along the way. This one is, sit every day. Sit every day. Repeat that mantra a hundred thousand times a day. <laughs> sit every day. What's so amazing is that from the perspective of where you are now, that must seem like the simplest thing in the world. <laughs> I mean, sitting every day. You've been sitting all day, every day, for months now. But again, those of you who are experienced yogis and who have come and gone on retreat many times know that it's not so easy. And we get caught up in the busyness of our lives and we have great intentions to sit every day, but it's so easy for it to get squeezed out. Squeeze it back in. Really create the day around your time of sitting. One of the common patterns that happens is that as people leave retreat and get busy in the world, the quality of the sitting goes through a lot of changes. You know, and sometimes it's quite peaceful and concentrated, and other times just sitting and thinking for an hour, unlike these months. <laughs> <laughs> Just as you've been learning here, don't judge the sitting. Even if you sit down and it's just one endless stream of thoughts, there is still value in the discipline of a daily sitting practice. If nothing else, it's a way of emptying out. Instead of the congestion of holding all of this in the mind and the body, there's a release happening. It's the practice of effort. Even if it's coming back to the breath, every breath or every other breath, you know, and bringing the mind back, that effort is a strengthening. And so a key reminder is not to judge the quality of the sitting, but just to sit. Sit every day. The second suggestion, which is so helpful if we actually practice it. And the Buddha talked about it in many of the suttas. Is staying mindful of the body. Mindfulness of the body. So we're in our bodies. We're not lost in our thoughts. We're not lost in our fantasies. We're actually present. We're embodied as we're moving about. It's a very simple and effective way to be present, to be mindful. It doesn't have to do with slowing down. It would be very strange if you're in the streets of wherever in lifting, moving, placing. It's not necessary. At whatever speed, whatever activity, 
can we be in our bodies? Can we be attentive? Can we be mindful? One of the clearest signals that we're out of the body, that we're lost in our thoughts, is when we have the feeling of rushing. And that happens quite a lot. You know, where we're doing something and we're having that feeling being rushed. What that means is that the mind is ahead of itself. It's already at its destination or it's already contemplating the next action. And so we're toppling forward. Let that feeling of rushing be a signal. Let that be a wake-up signal to stop for a moment, settle back into the body, become aware, actually, of what we're doing. Sitting every day, mindfulness of the body, a very nice way of holding the space of awareness is by paying attention to sounds. Now, to settle back and just open up to the sounds that are all around us. They might be the sounds of nature. They might be the sounds of just the environment. They may be pleasant. They may be unpleasant. doesn't matter because it can create for us a big mind. It can create a spacious mind. Just sitting and listening. Hearing the sounds arise and pass away. It's a wonderful way of again becoming centered, of becoming spacious. Sitting every day, mindfulness of the body, opening to sounds, these are not complicated things. It's just remembering to do it and practicing that remembering. The fourth very interesting application of the Dhamma, application of our practice, is paying attention, as we've been doing, to the thoughts and emotions that arise throughout our day. As you've seen so clearly, when thoughts are unnoticed, they are so dominant in our lives. It's as if we're slaves of thoughts. Thoughts arise. Go to Barry for three months. You find yourself three months later. Thoughts arise. Do this, do that. And very often we're not even aware that they're in the mind. And so we're just acting out. We're, we're following these thoughts without a clear sense of awareness, of wisdom. And so paying attention to this amazing process of consciousness. Sometimes I'll just be out in some public place and sitting and just begin watching my thoughts with... <laughs> it's with the interest of understanding, okay, what is this thought? And what is this phenomenon that's just arising? Where is it arising from? It just kind of comes and it's there and it goes. What is it?
What is an emotion? How does an emotion arise in us? You know, we're going along, going along, and all of a sudden, due to some conditions, we may feel tremendously happy or sad or angry or fearful, whatever. What is it that's going on? You know, it's this manifestation of consciousness that so influences our lives, our actions, our relationships. And so can we bring this sense of investigation, of inquiry, into, into the heart of our lives? Now, as we're living, as we're engaging, as we're relating, what is it that's going on? How is this happening? What is the nature of our minds? This is the spirit that really keeps the practice alive for us. It keeps us awake rather than be lulled into the sleep of not knowing, of ignorance. Sitting every day, mindfulness of the body, opening to sounds, investigating the nature of thought, the nature of emotion, really taking an interest because this is the stuff of our lives. And most profoundly, most deeply, looking very carefully in the course of our lives at how the sense of self is created in particular moments. We're going along, going along, everything is nice and smooth, and something happens and there's that contraction, there's that glitch of a contraction around the idea of self. It might have to do with something that's pleasant, that we want, and we want to keep it, and we want to hold it, and we feel that contraction. It might be around something that's unpleasant, an unpleasant encounter, unpleasant feeling, unpleasant emotion, and we contract, and we feel that solidification of the sense of self again. Right there is the time to look, to really understand how that solidification happens and how the release can happen, how the freedom can happen. So the first field of training that we integrate in our lives as part of this path of awakening is the field of sila. We refine the morality. The second field of training is the field of samadhi, of these three qualities of effort, of mindfulness, and concentration. And we do all of these things and many others to keep these factors strong to really be developing them and cultivating them in the course of our lives, not waiting to be on retreat. And the third field of training is wisdom. And wisdom develops both from the intensive meditation practice that we've done in these months, and it comes from wise attention in our lives. 
one of the most fruitful areas for the development of wisdom, genuine wisdom, are the times of suffering in our lives. If we know how to use them well, if we know how to look well, because the times of suffering can be the greatest times of opening because of the intensity and the immediacy of what's happening. At that time, the truth of suffering is not a theory. It's not something the Buddha said 2,500 years ago, and maybe it sounds good and maybe it doesn't. We're in it. We're in the middle of it. We're actually experiencing this truth of suffering. How are we relating to it? Because these are the opportunities that we can see it very clearly. We're not remembering something in the past. We're not imagining it in the future. We're right in the middle of it. Can we see clearly what's going on? A key element in understanding this incisively and deeply is to be inquiring or investigating the suffering not from a place of blaming external causes. Because although there may be conditions which have brought it about, the real suffering comes from how we're relating to it. And so that's where we need to look. We need to look in ourselves. Where is their attachment? Where is their fear? Where is their holding? Where is the contraction? That takes a tremendous amount of courage. It takes a tremendous amount of willingness. Because we're we're looking at those deepest places in ourselves that become identified with something. As I mentioned the other night, I recently went through that experience so deeply, and it was so painful to watch the heart contract around something and just tighten. And then it got so interesting over time. (laughs) Took a little time. But just to see to see how it was possible to open again, to actually open the heart, to free the heart. And it had nothing to do with conditions outside of myself. It had to do with understanding deeply what was going on inside of myself. The great beauty in this is seeing that every situation is workable. Freedom is not dependent on external conditions being a certain way. It depends on our own willingness, our own interest at looking and exploring. There's another kind of wisdom which is wonderful to understand. 
And that is seeing that in a very fundamental way, we make choices. We make certain choices in our mind to suffer or not to suffer. Often it doesn't look like there's a choice. (laughs) Often it looks like the suffering is just coming and has landed. But if we look carefully, we can see that with, with some practice, this is not easy to do, but with some practice we can both free the mind up and we can also change the channel. These TV things are great. You know, you don't like what's on? Click, 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 mute. (laughs) The mute button is the best. (laughs) One of the ways of changing channels, at least that has worked for me, when I'm watching a bad program, you know, when it's really not a good program, I find that it's usually not a good program when I'm lost in certain circular thoughts going on and on in my mind. You know, mulling over a situation or keeping on thinking about a certain thing. And the way I found of changing the channels is remembering to drop down from the head to the heart. And even if the heart is tender, or sad, or hurt, or whatever, maybe an an unpleasant feeling, but when we're down in the heart, it seems to me that it's much easier to actually create some spaciousness around it, some balance around it. When we're lost in the thoughts, when we're caught up in our heads, it's much more difficult. And there's a very, it's, it's an almost physical process of just dropping down and letting the awareness and the softness operate around the heart. The wisdom that comes from understanding the times of difficulty, from understanding the times of suffering. It's so different than how people usually relate to it. You know, so often we're just... The conventional way of working is either to be wallowing in it, you know, and feeling sorry for oneself, or tremendous blame, you know, on people or situation outside of ourselves, there's another whole way of using it as the, as the food of enlightenment. So this is one arena of wisdom. It's one very fruitful place to actually apply the Dhamma because it allows us freedom in the moment. His Holiness Karmapa had a wonderful little phrase for yogis. He said, do what you know. 
it's not enough just to know it. We have to do it. And in the doing of it is the freedom. How can we get some clarity about the attachments in our lives that are at the root of suffering? How can we understand that sometimes things get so confusing? You know, we know that there may be a difficult situation or a time of suffering, and we may have some vague idea that there's some attachment or fear or something involved. How can we begin to sort it all out? The Buddha sorted it out. And so we can use, we can use that clarity to really reflect on our own situation. He talked about four great areas of attachment. Attachment to sense pleasures. If we get attached to something which is changing, and we want to hold on to it, we want it to stay the same way, and then it changes, we're going to suffer. We're going to feel unsatisfied, going to feel abandoned. You know, from the perspective of a three-month retreat, that must seem so obvious and so clear. Having seen these objects arise and pass away so many times, There's a subtlety here that arose from my very intermittent study of Pali. But I, it struck me so forcibly that I just I wanted to share it. We often speak of attachment to sense objects. Now, when I hear that, my first reaction is, I'm not so attached to sense objects. You know, I know they come and go. This doesn't really concern me. That's that's my initial reaction. But as we were studying Pali, and just the, the translation of the actual phrase, it was an attachment to sense objects. What it was, it's the attachment to the happiness of sense objects. And all of a sudden, for me anyway, just when I heard that, that clicked in a much different way. Because then I saw, yeah, I'm, not, I'm not so attached to the sense objects. But I could just see my mind sort of attached to the little delights in the sense objects. And that that became much more real for me, and it illuminated just these movements of the mind, sometimes very little movements. You know, just the delight in a piece of chocolate, or to some pretty big movements. And so just to look in that way, 
to see if that illuminates anything for you. This kind of attachment, the attachment to the delight, the attachment to the happiness of sense objects, because that happiness also is very fleeting. It's not a fulfilling one. It's not that it's wrong, because we live in the world of sense objects. It's when we get attached. That's where the problem is. Just taking it down one step further, I think we can use this to really look deeply in our lives at what it is we most value. What are we doing in our life choices? Is it for, basically, is the underlying value for the happiness of different sense objects? Or is it for something else? And just to look, to look very honestly, so that we have a very clear picture of what our values are, of what our choices are. And it doesn't mean, and it does not imply necessarily that we all renounce the world and become monks or nuns, although that is one beautiful possibility. But it can also mean living in the world but having a very clear sense of direction, very clear sense of what the root values of our life is about, and the choices that we make from that. So this is the first arena of attachment that we can look at, really examine. The second is a wonderful one, and it is going to raise its many-sided head very quickly. And that is attachment to opinions. This is so pervasive in us. In the course of the retreat, of course, it's seen very clearly every time we get lost in the judging mind. What is the judging mind? It's attachment to an opinion. In our relationship with people, you know, in the way we live in the world, it comes up so strongly, and so much of the conflict in the world between societies, between people, comes from this attachment, strong attachment, to the opinion we have about something. It does not mean that we don't have opinions, because we do, and I think that's quite necessary. It's not a question of having opinions, it's a question of whether we're attached to them or whether we can entertain them and also see that there are a thousand other ways to see a situation. If we work with this attachment, it really creates the possibility of a genuine tolerance, not a tolerating tolerance, but a real genuine understanding that there are many perspectives.
attachment to sense, attachment to the happiness of sense objects, attachment to opinions, attachment to what the Buddha called and what was appropriate very much in those days, attachment to rites and rituals. Trungpa Rinpoche translated very well for our time. He called it spiritual materialism. Where somehow we use our spiritual practice in some way to strengthen the sense of self and separation. I'm such a good yogi. I'm such a bad yogi. This way is the best way. It's the highest way. It's the diamond way. <laughs> that way is the quickest way. Just all the, all the million things that happen around spiritual practice, which are just a form of spiritual materialism, of solidifying some sense of separation, some sense of self. It's an occupational hazard. And so we need to take care with that so that we don't get caught in it. And the last of the great attachments, the big one, the central one, the core one, is attachment to this idea of self, this concept of self, the idea that experience is happening to someone. But there's a someone to whom experience refers. This notion of I, of the witness, the observer, the whatever, the attachment to that view is the root attachment that wisdom illuminates. And so we watch, we watch very carefully through the day and particularly in these coming days when you're still in the context of the retreat but will be relating to one another, be very watchful for just those moments when that strong sense of I arises again. Watch what's happening. What is the identification that's taking place? Is it with a certain thought? Is it with a reaction? Is it with an emotion? Is it in relationship to another person? Is it in relationship to some feeling in the body? Really see carefully in the moment how this sense of I is created. Because right there is suffering and right there is freedom. One of the great lines of Buddha Dhamma, and the Sri Lankan monk, no self, no problem. Can we see that? Can we really work with it? If you look at these three months as the training for how to be observing the mind and body. If you see it as a training for that, it gives the impetus 
for actually continuing to do that outside of the retreat. Watch to see, and you have over this last week especially, but even more so in these next few days, just watch to see how the mind creates stories. Creates stories about our experience. We start living in this movie theater of our minds. They're just stories. They're just these (laughs) fantasies, the emptiness of the mind. And to see that, to actually, even, even to see it just for a few moments, reminds us, oh yeah, that's not the reality of what's going on. One of the essence teachings of the Buddha, which can, which can serve as a reminder, in the seen, there is just what is seen. In the heard, there is just what is heard. In the sensed, that is smell and taste and touch, there is just what is sensed. And in the thought, there is just what is thought. That's all. Can we live in the simplicity of that place of understanding, of that place of wisdom? It takes a lot of practice. It takes a lot of awareness, of attentiveness. So we develop the wisdom, this third field of training, from the understanding, from the real investigation of suffering, of the times of suffering in our lives, and seeing the causes, the kinds of attachments that are operative. Attachments to the delight in sense objects, attachment to opinions, attachment to spiritual materialism, attachment to the idea of self. So we investigate, we really look to see what is going on in times of suffering. We develop wisdom through an increased understanding and perception of impermanence. We really see clearly that things are changing so quickly. We work with the recollection of death, that it's actually happening in every moment and it will happen in its conventional meaning to all of us. But it's not a mistake, and it's not something that shouldn't happen. It's part of nature. From this recollection of impermanence and death, it allows us to drop into what our deepest values are, what is truly important in our lives. And just as you've seen how quickly these three months have gone, you know, in the middle of it, it may not have seemed so quick. But at this point, looking back, it's amazing to me, we just came together. Our lives are like that. You know, another few breaths, and we'll be 80. It happens like that. That's what's going on. Okay, what do we do with that? We need to be awake. We need to be aware. Wisdom is this investigative factor in the mind. It's the sense of really looking, 
It's the light. Wisdom is the light which illuminates the Dhamma, illuminates the truth. And what's so beautiful about the development of wisdom is that the light of a single candle can dispel the darkness of a thousand years. Doesn't matter how long ignorance has been there, how long we've been deluded. We light a single candle and the truth is illuminated. So that's what we're doing. We're illuminating our minds. It's in this training of wisdom that we see deeply that the meditation is not about getting something. And so as you look at your time here, it's not about what you may have gotten or not gotten. It's about what we understand. That is the measure of the practice. Have we seen something more clearly? And how that seeing, how that wisdom actually transforms our lives. That's what the retreat is about. One is an image, and I can't remember where it came from. It sounds like it came from the Dalai Lama, but I don't actually remember. He urged people to rest their heads in the lap of the Buddha. I thought that was a very nice image. It's like we can rest in the lap of the Buddha, which really means this surrender to the Dhamma, surrender to the truth. Doesn't have to be a struggle. We can rest in that. We can take refuge in that. And this is from Ajahn Chah, the Thai meditation master. It was a closing to a talk that he gave. In ending, I wish that you continue your journey and practice with much wisdom. Use the wisdom that you have already developed to persevere in practice. This can become the ground for your growth, for the deepening of yet greater understanding and love. Understand that you can deepen your practice in many ways. Don't be lazy. If you find yourself lazy, then work to strengthen those qualities which overcome it. Don't be fearful or timid. If you are timid in practice, then work with your mind so that you can overcome that. With proper effort and with time, understanding will unfold by itself. But in all cases, Use your own natural wisdom. You come to where you have no more questions, to that place of silence, to the place in which there is oneness with the Buddha, 
with the Dhamma, and with the universe. And only you can do that. So do it already. From now on, it's up to you. Becoming one with the Buddha, one with the Dhamma, one with the universe. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.